Welcome to the Calvary Chapel Naples Weekly Sermon Podcast. We hope you'll be blessed by this week's message from Pastor Aaron Lapp. For more information about this podcast and other Calvary Chapel Naples resources, please visit us at ccnaples.org. Heavenly Father, I do just thank you so much for this morning, uh, for the cool temperature and the sunshine. Lord, I thank you so much for the opportunity that we have to come and gather together, um, a, a group of us, with the same confession that you are the Son of God, the Christ, the, of the living God. Lord, I pray um, that as we open up your word this morning, that you would speak to us, that you would speak into our hearts the very thing that you would have us here today. Lord, I pray that you would just use me this morning as the instrument in your hand, Thank you, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen. Well, last week, we went through chapter 16. We saw that the Pharisees and the Sadducees, two religious orders that are opposed to one another, unite to come against Jesus. They ask Jesus to prove himself by giving them a sign from heaven. And Jesus replies by saying that the only sign that will ever turn a sinful heart toward belief is his death and his resurrection. While he's making this profound spiritual statement, the disciples are more concerned that they didn't bring anything to eat. Jesus reminds them that he is their provider and not the other way around. A good reminder to us as well is he doesn't need our help. No matter how anxious we are to give it to him. Then Jesus asks them who people say that he is. And we saw last week that the answers that they gave then are the same answers that people still give today. He's a great man, a great rabbi, a a teacher, even a prophet. And then Jesus asked them the most important question, who do you say that I am? Every person will need to answer that question. I pray that your answer is the same as Peter's. You are the Christ, the son of the living God, or you are my Lord and my Savior. You will one day stand before God and he will say, who is my son? If your answer is a good man, a great teacher, or even a prophet, The Bible says that you will be cast into outer darkness where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. He must be your Lord and your Savior. Jesus then tells Peter that on this confession and the confessions of many others, he will build his church. And against that confession, no evil will prevail. He then speaks of his suffering and his death, which is coming, to which Peter, the spiritual giant that he is, takes Jesus aside and tells him that he shouldn't speak like that and that they will never let that happen. Well, Jesus rebukes Peter for suggesting that he need not suffer and die. Peter has unwillingly tempted Jesus in the same way that Satan did in the wilderness when he said, Jesus, you don't need to go to the cross. Simply worship me and I'll give you all of this. He says to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling stone to me. 
Jesus then finishes this, this chapter by letting us all know that if this life is all that you want, then this life is all that you will ever have. But if you surrender this one to Jesus, he will give you an eternal one instead. Amen? Chapter 17. Now, after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John to the, and uh, his brother, led up onto a high mountain by themselves, where he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. This is maybe familiar to you. It's called the transfiguration of Jesus. It's pretty well known. There's a couple of things that I thought about as this. First of all, where was this? The Mount of Transfiguration. There's three, there's three thoughts here, right? One is possibly Mount Hermon. They, they're in Caesarea Philippi. You know, it says six days later. So maybe they stayed there for six days or it took them six days to walk up the mountain. Or maybe they went south for six days. It could be Mount Hermon because Mount Hermon is over 9,000 feet high. And the scriptures does say that he went up onto a high mountain. Alexander the Great's mother went through the land and established many religious sites still, um, still known today. I think that she was off on most of them. Um, she believed that it was Mount Tabor where the transfiguration happened. The Mount Tabor is only like 1,300 feet high. That's not a very high mountain. And in fact, Josephus tells us at that time, the top of the mountain of Mount Tabor had a Roman garrison on top of it. Doesn't seem likely that Jesus would go all that. Plus, it's all the way down on the far side of, of uh, the, the Sea of Galilee. Seems like quite a distance to go. There's another mountain, Mount Marin, that's about 3,000 feet high. And it's kind of uh, midway or on the way to um, Jerusalem. And so maybe that was where the transfiguration happened. Um, but here's, here's the thing. We don't know. And does it matter? No, it doesn't matter. He takes Peter, James, and John up to the top. It's, uh, it's, I'm wondering, like, why these guys? Why Peter, James, and John? The guy, it's actually recorded in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Well, those guys didn't go. Matthew, Mark, and Luke weren't at the Mount of Transfiguration. Peter, James, and John were. I wonder why Peter, James, and John were selected to go. Maybe it's because they needed the most work. Peter, certainly, we see that over and over again. P Jesus chooses Peter, James, and John to go up with them onto this high mountain where he is transfigured. His face shone like the sun, um, and his clothes became white as light. The word transfigured there is an interesting word. It's in Greek where we get the word metamorphosis. It's important, metamorphosis, that idea of a change, not a reflection of light, but a change uh, or a, a glowing light from the inside out. A change. You know, when you were in school and you talked about the metamorphosis of a butterfly. It goes into a cocoon and it's in there and the change happens on the inside and then it, it comes out and it's a butterfly. And it's the same idea is that it wasn't Jesus reflecting the light, but actually radiating the light from within himself. It's actually not so much a miracle that he was radiating light or showing his heavenly glory. 
The miracle is that he was actually able to keep it contained all the other time. It says that he never set aside his deity, but set aside his glory, veiled in human flesh while he was here. But in this instance, on this mountain, at this particular time, he, heaven opens up just a little bit. He t- removes the veil of his human flesh and reveals his glory that is inside, the, the inside glory that now is showing outward. You want to know what's really interesting? Paul writes to the Roman church. He says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. The word transformed, guess what? Metamorphosis. Same Greek word. That like Jesus, who radiates glory from the inside out, that is how we are transformed from the inside. It's an inside change. The Holy Spirit comes in and is inside of us and changes us from the inside out transformed, metamorphosized, I don't know, how do you say that? Metamorphosed. We'll we'll just go on. (laughs) John is so blown away by this that he writes in his gospel, um, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. There they are on the top of this mountain in a, in a sliver of heaven where his glory is revealed, who he really is unveiled by human flesh. And then in verse 3 it says, And behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them talking with him. Here's a question. How did they know it was Moses and Elijah? They have little name tags. Hello, my name is Moses. How did they know it was Moses and Elijah? Jesus is going to tell them after they're done, don't talk about this, not even to the other guys. And they don't, actually. He says, don't talk about it until after I'm resurrected. They don't actually talk about it. It takes a long time before Peter in 2 Peter writes about it himself. He says that we saw him there. John in his gospel is written long after Jesus' resurrection where he says we beheld his glory. Clearly, Jesus wasn't talking about it either. So how did they know it was Moses and Elijah? They had the, the, you know, heroes of the faith trading cards. And like, hey, I've got an Elijah. I'll give you a Samuel for your Moses. (laughs) This is what I think. You understand that heaven opened up just so slightly in that moment where Jesus himself is revealed in his glory, Moses and Elijah step forward in that moment. And uh, I believe that they experience what we will all experience when we are in heaven is the knowledge of, of all things. What is only partly known, the Bible says, there will be fully known. So as they're there in that small presence of a glimpse of heaven, they receive the knowledge of, they just know that it's Elijah. They just know that it's Moses. When we, are, when we get into heaven, we're not going to be walking around going, I wonder who that guy is. Oh, he looks a little bit familiar. I don't recognize them at all. We will know, the Bible says, what's only partly known here will be known there. You have relatives in heaven, I'm sure, that you've never met, but you will know them when you step in. My wife and I have a, a, a baby that we lost to miscarriage who will be there and I will recognize her and she will recognize me because it will be known 
when we are in heaven. Isn't that cool? Man, I can't wait for that. Well, then, Peter. (laughs) By the way, I just want to point out before I step into Peter here, you see Moses and Elijah. It's pretty significant that it's these two guys, right? Moses and Elijah. You know, um, think about it. Who, Who do Moses and Elijah represent? Moses represents the law. Elijah represents the prophets. You see, you've got Moses and Elijah with Jesus in perfect harmony, not in conflict, not fighting one another. In fact, the law and the prophets with the Son of God operating in perfect harmony right here in this one scene. Not like the Pharisees had said that Jesus was in opposition to the law and the prophets, but actually together with them, conversing. What were they talking about? You see, it says that they were there talking with him. What were Moses and Elijah and Jesus talking about? I know, actually, this one I know. Because Luke tells us in his gospel, they were speaking of Jesus' upcoming death. You understand? Jesus knew it was coming. He was talking about it with Moses and Elijah. And maybe Moses and Elijah were even encouraging Jesus in what was to come. We know that he knew he was going to do it and that he had to do it. I don't know that he was really thrilled to have to do it, but he was going to be in obedience to the Father's will no matter what. So here you have Moses and Elijah sitting there in this uh, slight opened up uh, of uh, heaven, and they are talking with Jesus about his upcoming death. Then Peter, the spiritual giant, steps in and answers and said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. <laughs> if you wish, let us make three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. <laughs> Peter, you know, it says in Mark's gospel that they were asleep. The, the, the three disciples were asleep and it was like the brightness from Jesus' light that probably shone through their closed eyelids that they were like, what, what's that? what is that light? And they wake up and they see Jesus transfigured and Moses and Elijah standing there and Peter says, boy, it's a good thing we're here. <laughs> Let us make three tabernacles, one for you, one for you, and one for you. You know, Mark also writes that Peter said this because he didn't know what else to say. You understand that Mark wasn't there. Mark talked to Peter and then wrote his gospel based on what Peter said. So Peter must have said to Mark, I, was up to, I didn't know what to say. I, I, so I just said like, Jesus, good thing we're here. Let, let, let me build three tabernacles for you, three tents, three per- temporary dwelling places for you. Do you know that in Ecclesiastes, it says that there is a time to be silent? (laughs) This was one of those times. One of those times where he should have been silent. Do you ever feel the need to fill a quiet time with words? You feel like, I've got to say something? That used to happen to me all the time when I was at a funeral. And I would feel like, man, I, you know, I, I should come up with something really comforting to say. And I would say some stupid thing that later you'd be like, why did I say that? Why didn't I just sit there with my arm around that person and be silent and comfort them with just being there next to them? Sometimes it, we're just supposed to be silent. Peter should have been silent. 
Because um, look what happens. Now, you remember, just in the last chapter, Peter was rebuked by Jesus when he stepped in and said, Jesus, do you, you know, don't talk like that. Um, and then Jesus turns around and he says, you know, hey, get behind me, Satan. Rebuked by, you would think that Peter would learn his lesson rebuked by Jesus. No, here he is. Um, it's good that we're here. Let us build uh, three tabernacles. And so then God himself steps in now to rebuke Peter. And while he was still speaking, he just can't stop himself. While he's still speaking, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And suddenly a voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my beloved son whom I am well pleased. Hear him. Uh, Do you know why God steps into that moment and says that? Because Peter has unwittingly just said, Jesus, Moses, Elijah, you're on the same level. Let me build a tabernacle for you, you, and you. And God says, whoa, whoa. Steps in and says, this is my son, whom I am well pleased. He doesn't even recognize Moses and Elijah, by the way. He says, no, Jesus, my son is not on the level with Moses and Elijah. He's so much higher. And then he says, I am well pleased. Does that sound familiar? This is my son in whom I am well pleased. Do you guys remember that? Anybody? The baptism of Jesus. That's right. It's the same thing that the heavenly father said when Jesus came up out of the baptism waters. At both times, Jesus is demonstrating obedience to the father's will. He didn't need to be baptized, but he did it so that the Father's will would be fulfilled. He said, uh, John says, no, no, I, I should baptize you. And Jesus says, no, let it be so, so that it is fulfilled. Now he's speaking to Moses and Elijah about his death on the cross. He didn't need to die on the cross for his sins. He was without sin, but he willingly went to the cross to fulfill the Father's will and save us from our sin. And the Father is well pleased. He does this also as an example to us. Our obedience is a delight to the Lord. 1 Samuel 15, 22, it says this, What is more pleasing to the Lord, your burnt offerings and sacrifices, or your obedience to his voice? Listen, obedience is better than sacrifice, and submission is better than the offering of the fat of rams. Your obedience to the Father is pleasing to him, more then sacrifice. Then he says, hear him. Listen to him intently with understanding. That is what God says. You know what he doesn't say? Pay attention to his miracles. <laughs> because miracles don't convict a sinful heart. When the disciples heard it, they fell on their faces and were greatly afraid. You understand, they didn't fall on their face when they saw Jesus glowing like a light bulb. They didn't fall on their face when they realized that's Moses and that's Elijah, and those guys died a long time ago. But when the voice of God spoke from a cloud, they were brought to the ground with fear and trembling. Do we comprehend God with the proper fear, awe, and respect, or have we reduced him to an idea distant, perhaps uninvolved, maybe a cartoon character with a long white beard hanging around in the clouds, easily replaced by our own understanding and wisdom. You know, the Jews so revered God that they wouldn't even speak his name. 
How far have we come from that? Now his word, his name is a, a curse word, an expletive. Do you know that Job, God actually reminded Job, had to remind Job of his majesty. In Job 38, you know the story of Job, he's um, caught up in this conversation between his friends and um, they're saying, you're, you're sinful. This is why all this stuff happens. And, and Job is arguing back with them. And finally, God steps in in chapter 38 of Job. And he says to Job, he says to Job in a whirlwind, who is this who darkens counsel by, the words, by words without knowledge? Now prepare yourself like a man and I will question you and you shall answer me. Those are words I hope I never hear from a cloud with God's voice. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? To what were its foundations fastened? Or who laid its cornerstone? When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy, or who shut the sea with its doors when it burst forth and issued from the womb? He goes on to say, have you commanded the morning since your days began and caused the dawn to know its place? Again, he says, have you entered the springs of the sea or have you walked in search of its depth? Have the gates of death been revealed to you? Or have you seen the doors of the shadow of death? Have you comprehended the breadth of the earth? Tell me if you know all of this. He says to him, have you entered the treasury of snow or seen the treasury of hail? I actually love that picture in my mind. I just think of like a big warehouse filled with snowflakes. And he's like, today, this, this is all going to Buffalo this weekend. <laughs> he says, which I have reserved for the time of trouble. This is Job's first response to when God speaks to him. And Job's first response is, is this, behold, I am vile. What shall I answer to you? I lay my hand over my mouth. Once I have spoken, but I will not answer. Yet twice I will proceed no further. God goes on and on asking him all of these questions. Did you do this? Did you do this? Do you know this? Do you know any of this information? Yet you claim to have all of this knowledge about who I am? And finally, Job responds in this way. I know that you can do everything and no purpose of yours can be withheld from you. You asked who is it who hides counsel without knowledge. Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me which I do not know. Listen, please, and let me speak. You said I will question you and you shall answer me. I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear. By now my eyes see you. Therefore, I abhor myself and repent in dust and ashes." It just cautioned us that do we revere God in the way that he deserves to be revered? After this happens, it says in, the, in verse 7, but Jesus came and touched them and said, arise and do not be afraid. And when they had lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. The disciples hear the voice of God coming to them. And he's saying, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. Hear him. And they fall down to the ground afraid. Jesus comes to them and he says that they need not be afraid. 
We are not to be afraid of God. We are to fear God. Do you understand the difference? We are to revere him, to hold him in the proper regard, but not be afraid of him. When it comes down to it, in verse 8, it ends with this, Jesus only. (laughs) I have that underlined in my Bible. Jesus only. Now, as they came down from the mountain, Jesus commanded them, saying, tell the vision to no one until the Son of Man is risen from the dead. And man, I mean, if you were Peter, James, and John, wouldn't you just be like, oh man, are you kidding? We just saw you lit up like a light bulb. We saw Moses and Elijah. We heard the voice of the heavenly Father from the clouds, and we can't tell anybody? In the other Gospels, it says they wondered what he meant by after my resurrection. (laughs) They, They can't get there. They can't get to that place. Even though he'll say my death and my resurrection, they dwell on what? His death. Because they're wrapped up completely in this life. This life that we have here to us seems so long. To God is like, it's like that. And then it's eternity. Then the disciples ask him and saying, why then did the disciples say that Elijah must come first? And Jesus said to them, indeed, Elijah is coming first and will restore all things. But I say to you that Elijah has already come and they did not know him, but did to him whatever they wished. Likewise, the son of man is about to suffer at their hands. And so they come to him and they say, oh, well, you know what, Jesus, you know, we know of this prophecy in Malachi, um, Malachi 4, 5. I'm going to turn there real quick if I can. In Malachi 4, 5, it says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And so they're saying to Jesus, all right, we just saw Elijah. Does that mean now this is the time? Is this the dreadful day of the Lord that's coming? They're a little confused. And and Jesus says, I'm telling you that Elijah is going to come before that time. I happen to believe that that it's a reference to um, Revelation chapter 11 where it talks about the two prophets that the Lord will send to um, preach to the people for like a thousand days. I forget the number. Um, And they will have power to bring people to an understanding. They'll also, people will try to kill them and fire will come out of their mouth and, and, and consume whoever tries to kill them. And I believe that those two witnesses are Elijah and Moses. But then he says, but I say to you that Elijah has already come already and that he did not know, they, they did not know him, but they did whatever they wished. Likewise, the son of man is about to suffer at their hands. And then it says the disciples understood that he spoke to them of John the Baptist. You remember when Gabriel came to John the Baptist's father, Zacharias, uh, in the temple, and he says, you're going to have a son. And uh, Zacharias is like, right, I'm old. My wife is really old. It's too bad that got written down, right? I bet his wife was like, oh yeah, remember this? Remember what you said here, that I was really old? And Gabriel looks at him and is like, I'm Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. I'm telling you, you're going to have a son. And he says, and he will come in the power and spirit of Elijah. And he did. And he came and he turned many of the hearts of the fathers back. It says, or the children to the fathers. And it says that uh, when they had come 
So the disciples, they understood that he was speaking of John the Baptist. That's, that's a first for them, really, that they, they got it. And when they had come to the multitude, a man came and kneeling down before him, saying, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he is an epileptic and suffers severely, for he is oft, often falls into the fire and often into water. What a bummer. Honestly, they just come off the Mount of Transfiguration, this incredible spiritual high. And immediately as they come to the bottom of the mountain, there's a problem to be solved. Has that ever happened to you? An incredible time with the Lord? Only for have it followed by some challenge or obstacle? Is that it's how we see it, right? Oh man, my spiritual high just got derailed by this burden before me. You see, we see burdens. Jesus sees opportunity for ministry. He's constantly reminding me of that. It must be a problem for me. Jesus doesn't see a burden. He sees an opportunity to minister to this man and his son. They bring this man to him who uh, here it says that he has epilepsy. Actually, the Greek word is like moonstruck or like, like a lunatic, right? And the other gospels say, Mark says that he was made deaf and dumb by a demon as well. So we know that there's a demon. That's how Jesus heals him, by casting out a demon, So the man says that, um, so I brought him to your disciples, but they could not cure him. And then Jesus answered and said, oh, faithless and perverse generations, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I bear with you? Bring him to me. And Jesus rebuked the demon and it came out of him and the child was cured from that very hour. Then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, why could we not cast it out? Why couldn't they cast it out? Hadn't he given them this power earlier in Matthew chapter 10? He gave them power to heal the sick and cast out demons and then sent them out. And then they came back talking about those very things that they had done. So why couldn't they do it right here? Well, perhaps they had faith in the wrong thing. Maybe their faith was in a formula or a past success. Well, we did it this way before and it worked. So I guess that's just the way we do it. We do this thing. We say these things. We sprinkle this on that person and it works, right? Isn't that how it works? The fact is it's not enough to have faith in faith. And it's not actually about the amount of faith. It's about who you have faith in. The word faith is Belief or even confidence, if you look it up in Greek. Faith means belief or confidence. Who do you believe in? In whom is your confidence in? And by the way, Jesus references faith as a mustard seed. Do you see what he says there? He says, because of your unbelief, assuredly, he answers it. He says, because of your unbelief, I say, to you, if you have faith as a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it, will, and it will move. Nothing will be impossible for you. Jesus says, if you had faith as a mustard seed. Do you know that I think that we have always looked at that and thought that means if you just have a little faith. A little faith, because we know that a mustard seed is, is little. 
But if he really meant little faith, don't you think he would have said pebble or grain of sand? I think there's actually more emphasis on seed. If you had faith as, because he doesn't say if you had faith as small as a mustard seed, he says as a mustard seed. If you had faith as a mustard seed, think about seed. A seed contains everything it needs. Faith is a gift from God, and when he gives us faith, he gives us everything we need to believe. It's our own unbelief that hinders that growth of faith or the growth of that seed. But what if we let that seed, that belief, that confidence in Jesus take root in our lives? Man, what would be accomplished? We'd say, mountain, move. By the way, that was a saying then? You could say, move this mountain. Faith is a gift. He's given it to us completely. It's our own unbelief that hinders the growth, the rooting of that. If we just say, I'm going to surrender what I've got over to Jesus and let that seed take root. You don't, you don't add to a seed. It contains all already. Then he says, however, this kind does not go out except with prayer and fasting. That's a very interesting, strange little verse right in the middle of there, isn't it? It's like Jesus is saying that there is kind of a hierarchy in the demon world. This kind, he says, of this kind requires prayer and fasting. You understand, and we don't grasp this because we can't see this, but there is a dimension going around us, a spiritual dimension that we don't see that actually was just kind of revealed a little bit to us in the transfiguration where it was just opened up a little bit where the disciples were able to see this fourth dimension. But there's stuff going on around us all the time. There is a demonic realm that's happening that Jesus references that says there is some hierarchy to the demon world as well. We know there is in the angel world. You know, there's the archangel who's in charge of, you know, this many angels. You know how many angels there are? I don't know. <laughs> no one knows. We don't know. Hundreds and thousands and millions. I don't know. But they're there and they're around us and the demons are around us. Know it. It's a reality. Now, while they were... Staying in Galilee, Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is about to be betrayed into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and the third day he will be raised up. And it says that they were exceedingly sorrowful. What did they hear? I'm going to be killed. What didn't they hear? Three days later, I'm going to rise from the dead. For some reason, they cannot grasp that idea that he is saying to them, even after all that he's shown them, even after everything that he's done to display his power over even nature, they cannot grasp the idea that he will come back from the dead. They are so wrapped up in this idea that he is going to die, that they can't get to the place of he is going to live again. When Jesus says over and over again, don't be anxious, don't worry, to us. And we're like, but I still worry and I'm still anxious. And I believe that's because we are so wrapped up in our world, are so wrapped up in our life now that we're not grasping a hold of the reality of the eternity that is coming just after this. And, and, and life now compared to eternity then, again, is a blip, a small little thing. They can't grasp it. It says, when they had come to Capernaum, I really like the story, this next little story. 
When they had come to Capernaum, those who received the temple tax came to Peter and said, Does your teacher not pay the temple tax? He said, Yes. And when he had come into the house, Jesus anticipated him, saying, What do you think, Simon? From whom do kings of the earth take customs or taxes? From their sons or from strangers? And Peter said to him, From strangers. And Jesus says, Then the sons are free. Nevertheless, lest we offend them, go to the sea, cast in a hook, and take the fish that comes up first. And when you have opened its mouth, you will find a piece of money. Take that and give it to them for me and you. That, that's, that's a crazy little miracle that Jesus says is going to happen. And he says, um, Peter, you know, essentially what he says is, the sons of the masters don't pay taxes. Jesus says, I am the ultimate son of the master, so I don't owe anything. But for the sake of everyone else, go down to the water, get a pole and a hook, you know, Peter was a fisherman, but not this kind of fisherman. He was like a, a guy that threw in a net and dragged it up on shore. And I believe that he was like a strong guy based on what I see here. And Jesus is saying, get a pole and go down to the water and cast it in and catch a fish. And when you pull that fish up, and I'm sure Peter's thinking, oh, this is so embarrassing. I you know, his, all his friends are there pulling, oh, hey, look, there's Peter. And he's like, Zzz. <laughs> Catch a fish, pull it up, open its mouth. In the fish's mouth, you will find a coin, not just a coin, but a coin that will be sufficient to pay your tax and my tax to the temple. Give it to them. That's a crazy miracle. Have you ever thought about that? It's just like just the weirdest thing. But one of the things that struck me is like, this is a, the type of miracle that would be impossible to fake. Nobody could fake this miracle. You could fake, you know, we see it sometimes when you're like, you know, there's a guy doing a healing uh, at a church and a person comes up in a wheelchair and then he puts his hand on him. And the guy stands up and then you learn out later, that guy could walk before. They faked it. At this time, you know, when, when Moses was doing miracles, like he was throwing down his stick and then Janus and Jambri, the magicians of the court of Pharaoh, threw down their sticks and they became snakes. There are certain miracles that could be faked, right? Maybe somebody could do it or fake it. Not this one. There's no way that anybody would have been able to fake this. What are the chances that Peter would catch a fish on a hook, and that that fish somewhere was swimming along, and someone dropped a coin in the water, and it got it, didn't swallow it, held it in its mouth, still was able to bite on a hook by Peter, who then pulled it up, opened it up, and found a coin in its mouth, and that coin was enough to pay his taxes and Jesus' taxes. What are the odds? It's impossible for that to have happened any other way. Now, there's a reason I'm emphasizing this. Jesus says that the sons of the masters not pay taxes. As the son of the master, I owe nothing. Yet, for the sake of others, this is what I want you to do. And he sends them to do this crazy miracle in this crazy way. Why? One of the craziest ones is it's impossible to fake. This miracle is a foreshadowing of what is about to take place. Jesus, who didn't owe anything, paid the price owed by others in a way that was impossible for anyone else to do. 
Only Jesus could go to the cross. Only Jesus could take on the sin of everyone because he was sinless. Only Jesus could then die and be raised from the dead, defeating death. Only Jesus could do that. It could not be faked. And in doing so, he paid what you owed. Oh, man, not such a crazy miracle, really. I love that. Thank you, Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much. Thank you for what you've shown us in this chapter this morning, Lord. The radiance of your glory that you kept hidden, veiled with human flesh, a glimpse for us to see, Lord. For sharing this with the disciples, Lord, that they would know that Moses and Elijah were there, Lord. Lord, thank you so much for reminding us that when we see burden, it's, there is opportunity for ministry. Lord, thank you for reminding us that we are to revere and hold God in awe. And Lord, thank you for showing us that you and only you could have died on the cross for our sins. But Lord, thank you for doing that so that I might be forgiven. Lord, that I might be able to enter into the presence of a holy God and be there for all eternity. Thank you, Jesus. Lord, I pray today that if there's anyone here who has not answered that question of who do you say Jesus is with the answer of my Lord and my Savior, I pray that today would be the day. Today is the day of salvation, as your word says. That they would call out and say, Lord, I know that I'm a sinner. Now please forgive me of my sins. Lord, I know that when someone calls out in earnest in that way that you do hear and that you do forgive and that they are written into the book of life. Thank you. Thank you, Lord. We pray this in your name, Jesus.